0: Episode 50 of If These Walls, in which we ask, Are we there yet?, is best paired with the song Truckin' by the Grateful Dead and a glass of 1996's Dead Red Unwine, a delightful non alcoholic offering from the Long Strange Trip Beverage Company. <laughs> Lainey hi no time to chat are you ready to record
1: I mean yeah we do this at the same time every week
0: okay great perfect no time uh we just got to pick up the pace okay what is something happening no 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 no. it's fine it's just we just have a long road ahead baby okay you ready uh yep all right let's do this one two three go Welcome to If These Walls, a storytelling podcast. A storytelling podcast about the parts of history and culture that make us more human and define our world and our own
1: lives. Each week, we share real stories and tell tales, famous, infamous, or unknown that fall under our interpretations about a specific theme. This week, Audrey is continuing the questions we've all asked, or something like that series that we're doing still after this many weeks. And tonight, she is asking the question, Are we there
0: yet? God, I hope so. Audrey, why this now? Because just as your tone implied just now, (laughs) we've been on one hell of a ride this past year slash four years slash century. And as I feel myself sputtering into the hot, sticky swamps of another summer in New York, I just want to confidently say, yes, there is a light at the end of this tunnel. And it's so close... That and with the warmer weather comes high school graduation parties, reunions, and more reasons to pack up the family and the old station wagon and hit the highway. And I'm really grateful to have had the chance to partake in some of these activities this year more than ever. Because it wasn't that long ago that I was but a wee babe loaded into the back of a Buick sedan with a handful of goldfish, a napping pillow, and a fat stack of brain teasers to pass the time. The trip from Detroit to wherever we were headed at the time was four to six hours, roughly, usually, also known as a lifetime when you're five years old. And inevitably, once the scenery shifted from city to town to the last billboard for Cracker Barrel and into a sea of soybeans and flat, the questions began. Are we there yet? Not quite. How much longer? If you're my dad which if you're listening to this podcast, you might be, you know full well that small children just don't understand units of time that well. You could say 74 mitochondria and little Audrey would have just as solid a grasp of how much longer it would take to get to Cedar Point as she would if you said two hours realistically, but like two hours and 45 minutes because traveling with small children adds a margin of error that includes potty breaks, fake potty breaks, And time to double back to the rest stop to rescue whatever toy was left behind during a potty break. Hey, Audrey. Yeah. The Kessel
1: Run takes less than 12 parsecs. Is it Back to the Future? Oh, my God.
0: Is it Back to the Future? It's not. Is it Star Wars? It's Star Wars. It is Star Wars. See, I know the vein that you're speaking to me from. I'm just more, I'm in the artery. I'm delivering the oxygen and you're coming back. Your your references are limping to the finish line and coming back for oxygen. Continue. That seemed to be about you, but it wasn't. I love you so much. So potentially long story cut relatively short. I've had travel on the brain. Well, actually travel and revisionist history. Hey, Lainey. What do you know about Hannibal? I ate his kidney with some fava beans and a nice chianti solid see and that's a reference that's a reference i can get behind what else do you know about hannibal
1: are the lambs still screaming clarice
0: i don't know well there is a reason that you spoke that way one because we both have the same hello cat i got so distracted by the cat jumping into the screen anyway Because we both have the same affinity for certain pop culture icons, specifically Anthony Hopkins, I didn't get into the Hannibal series. But that's not the Hannibal we're talking about today. I'm talking about Hannibal Barca. And the following is what I was told about Hannibal Barca before 2021. Quoth. He was a military leader who wanted to conquer Rome and tried to take over the region with elephants, but he was from Africa and didn't know about snow. And when he brought his army and elephants north, they got lost or froze or starved in the mountains north of Italy. Uh, go Rome. Rome is the best. Rome. rum, rum, Rome, Rome. Rome, Rome, Rome. That's about 12 times what I
1: would know about Hannibal Barca, whom I have never heard of.
0: And see... That's why I'm so happy we're having this conversation today, because not only is what I just said really incorrect, it's it's also an example of the casual erasure that runs rampant in our Western history books. Now, I'm not saying that Rome wasn't a major empire that shaped the world as we know it, but Hannibal was not some misguided wannabe conqueror. We've said it before and we'll say it again a large part of why we began this podcast in the first place was to explore pieces of history that were overlooked or misrepresented at least to us myself and elena that being said if you have spent hours of your life researching the punic wars the history of tunisia or innovative military campaigns then you may be well versed in the ins and outs of the mountain hike i'm going to talk about today but if you're me or shared the public and or parochial school Midwest educational experience I had, then you're in for a treasure trove of awesome historical tidbits and maybe a bit of frustration about that education you received.
1: The history education where they couldn't teach you about, you know, the suffering of Black Americans because they had to go coach football. Your teacher.
0: And apparently couldn't teach you about this awesome African general. There's even a whole, I'm not going into this today, but there is a spot of history where folks, Black folks had to defend the fact that Hannibal was African, essentially. Because white historians were like, no, 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 he was a white guy. He was a really smart general. And it's like, he's from Africa. Just like Jesus. Just what? Just like
1: all of us, really.
0: No, no, he's not from there. He was part of the census in Egypt, but he wasn't. Oh, Elena. I'm saying
1: we're all out of Africa at some point.
0: Just like Meryl Streep. All right. Hannibal Barca is one of the greatest military generals in history, whose tactics are still studied to this day. He was the number one adversary to Rome and had a wicked Red Sox versus Yankees deep-seated, hate-hate relationship that frankly deserves a summer blockbuster film adaptation, right, stat, meow. And the campaign through the mountains was bananas, and no, they did not get lost. Historians got lost. For over 2,000 years, historians argued over the route used by the general to guide an army of 30,000 soldiers, 38 elephants, and 15,000 horses. Over the Alps and into Italy, In just 16 days. Whoa. Yeah. For nearly 20 years, the Republic had to live with Hannibal, uh, knock, knock, knocking on its doorstep, constantly outwitting and surprising them. Picture it. Carthage. 265 BC. Along the northeast coast of Africa in modern day Tunisia... Carthage was a major trading empire, not only because of its own choice location, but because of its ownership of several island territories in the Mediterranean. Who run the seas? Carthage. Carthage.
1: Sorry, I really wanted to help.
0: It's a sing-along. No, I'm glad it took. Enter Rome. Looking to expand their ever-growing chain of sandals resorts, the Romans picked a fight known as the First Punic Wars and over the course of 16 years, yeeted Carthaginian troops out of the Mediterranean. The leader of these troops? General Hamilcar Barca. That's an amazing name. This episode is rife with amazing names. The Carthaginians had lost the war and the subsequent peace treaty, stripped them of their cash cow island territories in the Mediterranean in addition to the heavy financial reparations Rome demanded because when you lost a war you had to pay to apologize for being in the war in the first place. Hamilcar was understandably not happy but also he was a man on a mission to do his dang job which included preserving and protecting the prosperity of Carthage. To counter the Roman financial blow General Hamilcar believed that the way to improve fortunes for Carthage was to claim territories and resources on the Iberian Peninsula. Lainey, you know where that is? Iberia. It is a Spain, a Portugal, a France. It's the chunk. It's yeah. the club foot of Europe. That's what I said. That's what I heard. At the age of just nine, sweet little baby Hannibal was invited by his father to join him on the campaign in a Spain. Which falls mainly on the plains. Where the rain is. <laughs> it was during this campaign in the rain that Hamilcar is said to have had his son swear an oath to, quote, never be a friend of Rome. Understandable father-son bonding. Nothing brings people together like a common enemy. Go Bucks, muck fish again. So for the next nine years, Hamilcar conducted a fruitful campaign in Iberia seizing lands and sending resources back to Carthage and giving young Hannibal a masterclass in military tactics. But after nine years of conquest, Hamilcar was killed in battle. Hannibal's brother-in-law, Hasdrubal the Fair. Good God. I'm really torn on whether it was because he was a fairer complexion, because he was a reasonable person, or because Hasdrubal could fucking get it. <laughs> Hasdrubal was an absolute unit. Oh my God. Like a prime Hemsworth.
1: I'm quite honestly thinking about getting a whole slew of hamsters mm-hmm. and naming them Hamilcar, Hannibal, and Hasdrubal.
0: And Peggy. And Peggy. <laughs> yeah, I support this for you. You know what? mark hamsters Work. (laughs) Ah, You'd be a great hamster, mom. Thanks. Anyway. So Hasdrubal the Fair took command of the army and said, okay, guys, let's simmer down now and pack it in, okay? He even, he went to Minnesota.
1: I guess he did, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Uh, go Vikings. He even signed a peace treaty with Rome, setting a boundary at the river Ebro, that that's what the river's called Um, at the river Ebro that neither should cross and everyone could just go on about their merry lives with Rome in the Mediterranean and Carthage in Africa and the Iberian Peninsula. Cool. Cool. So after signing the treaty, the Romans had Hasdrubal the hot assassinated because Rome literally can't help itself. And with that, 26-year-old Hannibal Barca took command of the Carthaginian forces and said with a mighty Carthaginian roar, You done fucked up, Rome? After Rome made an allegiance with the city of Saguntum, which lay south of the river Ebro, but if you were to draw a river-shaped line north to south, it technically sits on the Carthaginian side of the previous peace treaty. So in his first move as general, Hannibal went down to Saguntum in 218 BC and said, fuck out of here, which prompted Rome to send an ultimatum directly to the leaders of Carthage. Hand over Hannibal or face war. Well, don't forget that Carthage was a merchant empire and the wealthy aristocrats back in Carthage had been enjoying the treasures and trending ports acquired by Hamilcar in the Iberian Peninsula. So if Hannibal was carrying his father's flag, the officials of Carthage were down to march behind their man. Q, the second Punic war. So that's why, that's the why of this story. As in, this is why an African general leading an army plus three dozen elephants up through Spain and France and around the back door via the Alps into Italy and shitting on Rome from the north. That's this, this why they're there. So now, about the where. The nature of the Alps. uh, They are prone to wind gusts and rapidly accumulating snowdrifts on crazy steep slopes. And that meant that Rome felt safe. No one should be able to cross the Alps. Switzerland has historically remained neutral in pretty much all wars because of the Alps. They are a seemingly impenetrable wall of mountains no army can cross, but obviously there's a little path or two to get goods through. How else would the world be blessed with sweet, sweet Swiss chocolate? Got to get the beans in. I need one a- of
1: those giant Toblerones that Joey eats on Friends. Have you had a Toblerone? Have I had a Toblerone? Not a yes. euphemism, an actual
0: Toblerone. Yes, I'm a human. Who gets- I'm sorry to all of our listeners who have not had a Toblerone. Let me continue.
1: What I was saying before you okay. interrupted me, okay. I am a human who gets chocolate in her Christmas stocking. So, yes, I have had a Toblerone.
0: A Toblerone and a Terry's Wacka Orange? Mm-hmm. Mm hmm. The tastes of the world. So, anyway, back to the Alps. The most obvious route for Hannibal to have taken through the Alps is currently called the Col du Clapier. the heart of the ocean. Known in antiquity as the way of Hercules. It's not the heart of the ocean. It's, it's not the reality. heart of the ocean. You should know what I'm talking about. Anyway, but in recent years, scientists have uncovered evidence suggesting that Hannibal took a much more dangerous and extreme route. The Col de la Traversette. <laughs> Insert sound effect. <laughs> Which is essentially the straight line method. The Col de la Traversette was at a higher elevation and had a much steeper ascent and descent, but it was the fastest route and the least expected. I mean, famously the fastest route between two points is a straight line, straight line. But this straight line, I mean, unless you had John Henry and his axe with you, it was like a, it's, there's mountains, man. (laughs) There's a lot of up and down in between. So This supports this this theory of the col de la traversette, and I don't want to say theory, I want to say actually proven, and I'm getting to why in just a second. It supports historical accounts by the Greek historian Polybius, who lived from around 200 BC to 118 BC, and who described Hannibal choosing, quote, the highest paths for his army, meaning over to big peaks. The reason it's taken so long to pinpoint the route taken and why historians were so at a loss for about 2,000 years is because there were no military documents or artifacts left anywhere in the Alps. He didn't write it out because he knew what the fuck he was doing, and they picked up their trash along the way. Be like Hannibal. Only recently have we been able to, to run tests on soil deposits along the Col de la Traversette in miry areas that would have been used long ago by the army's many animals as watering holes and as une toilette. Did they find, find an elephant poop? They did. The elephant poop is the key. Did Check I ruin it? The, yeah, it's the end of the paragraph. Damn it. Sorry. <laughs> but it really was. Shit was the clue. Compounds that are found in horse manure were plentiful in the sediment, suggesting that thousands of years ago, an army-sized group of horses relieved themselves while resting. And, of course, the elephant poop.
1: I just pictured Laura Dern digging into the giant Triceratops poop in Jurassic Park.
0: Yeah, I mean, but I picture that on a normal basis. We know they're poisonous, but we're pretty sure the animals don't eat them. Are you sure? There was so much wrong with everyone working at Jurassic Park. Can we diverge this episode and talk about that? No, we don't have time! (laughs) Time, it's of the essence. We got the destination and the motivation mapped out for Hannibal's trek. Now, let's lay out how 30,000 Carthaginians road trip it. Step one, pick your Patronus. Horses are so old hat, man. Every army had a cavalry, and to be frank, Carthage's Wasn't it strong suit, but Africa's got something cooler and way more effective at carrying supplies and causing damage, a pack of derms. Yes, they require about 220 pounds of food per day, which I mean, if you're going to feed somebody, feed them right. And the army would have needed to bring that along with them, but the elephants would have handled the terrain and the distance quite well, as they frequently have to cover great distances and cross-mountain passes, passes, mm-hmm. passes, Both in Africa and in the Himalayas. So whether they were African or Asian elephants, there is some debate about that. Not important right now to get into it. Um, but they were there. He had the fucking elephants, the poops in the mountains, you know. So no, not all of the elephants made the trip into Italy, but unlike my high school history teacher said, they did not, no, not, get lost or freeze in the mountains. Sadly, they drowned crossing the Rhone River before the team even began their trek. Um, BTW, this whole story of a few of the elephants, like maybe three, drowning was an engineering feat slash that shows how dang smart Hannibal was. I'm really quickly going to sidetrack into it just because it's fascinating. I encourage everyone to look into this: the crossing of the river Rhone. So elephants don't like boats. You really have to learn that firsthand. They don't like boats, but you got to get them across the river, right? And if anyone's played Oregon Trail, you know, fording the river is kind of a kind of a, a gamble. We will get to it. So I can't wait. <laughs> I just realized what you were alluding to. And I am so excited. So in order to get the elephants to think that they were just walking on some good old land, Hannibal had his crew construct rafts, tie them together and attach them to rocks upstream. They then threw dirt over these rafts. Each raft was roughly one elephant size. Now the first six or seven were attached to each other and they convinced the lead females to walk across this dirt-covered land bridge and they're kind of okay with it. But when you got to the end, they cut the rafts loose and all of a sudden, an elephant was by itself on a little boat going across the river. So smart, so fucking smart. Now, a few of the elephants... Got a little spooked. Most of them were like, oh, there's water in front of me. There's water behind me. There's water everywhere. Huh? And if you know anything about elephants, they are adorably skittish. They don't do mice. They don't do small things they don't understand. Most of them essentially worried themselves into a state of panic frozenness. Same. Which I so identify with. I am that <laughs> elephant. Um. And unfortunately, some of them just just couldn't quell their their nervous pacing enough to not uplift the raft. And some elephants can swim. In fact, many who did tip the raft over eventually just made the swim to the other side. It is a wide river, though. And um, it's believed maybe three of them were lost at that point in the journey. But the other ones made it. And that was, like, really impressive. Man, you got elephants across a river. That's like the Dothraki's getting to Westeros. Across the giant, what is it called? The grass sea? The sea grass? The wet plain. God, I need to rewatch that series. No, you Any... don't. <laughs> anyway, neither here nor there, still plenty of dumbos were dropped into Italy. Step two of the Carthaginian road trip, make friends. The first problem Hannibal faced after the Rhone River was the Alabrogus tribe. Hello, bro. Guess. Okay. I'll comment later. A riddle of sorts was his first task. And what is sure to be a lighthearted comedic scene in the forthcoming Hannibal summer blockbuster that I will help anyone write. The leader of the tribe, Brancus, had just been ousted by his brother. And everyone was trying to figure out who the rightful leader should be. When Hannibal arrived, the heads of the tribe forced the question on him for a reason that is never explained. It's just Hey, smart guy on a horse going by, you have elephants. Do you want to fix our tribe? Cool. Who should be in charge? No reason why. (laughs) But like Solomon the Wise, Hannibal put on his thinking cap, studied the tribe situation and politics, and selected Brancus to once again be the rightful leader, mostly because he already had the support of the leading men in the tribe. So suck it to the brother. And a grateful Brancus gave Hannibal the provisions he would need to cross the mountains in gratitude, especially the warm clothes that they did not have. The takeaway here is that instead of ignoring them or fighting them, as was the Roman approach, Hannibal stopped, listened, helped out some folks, and gained much-needed supplies and a solid ally. This would be the first of several instances of Hannibal either fighting different or outsmarting different um, tribes, smaller armies along the way. And because people frequently lived, it wasn't a a complete burn and destroy Roman tactic. People joined his army right and left. He was indeed the breaker of chains, the mother of (laughs) dragons. Step three, pick a lane and signal before merging. When he reached the Alps, Hannibal discovered a tribe of people who would hide in ravines and then rush down to attack any who attempted to pass into the mountains. Hannibal made camp in the valley and sent some of his acquired troops known as Gauls, native of the area now known as France, uh, sent them to check out not only because of their knowledge of the, the terrain, but also because of their speech and manners, which were widely considered to be similar to that of the mountain tribe. So it's like someone from Brooklyn talking to someone from Jersey. Mm -hmm. It's not the same. Don't tell them they're the same, but it's similar enough that they can ask for directions. (laughs) Thus, the Gauls were able to strike up a conversation with the tribe folk who for some reason revealed that they left their posts at night based off the assumption that Hannibal was just going to be unable to reach them from his side of the mountain. So knowing this Hannibal spent a day moving his troops around in ways that kept the tribe on their toes, but not quite close enough to attack. That night, once the tuckered out mountain folk hit the hay, Hannibal had his troops light their usual bedtime fires and began walking. The cavalry stayed behind with the baggage below, with the foot soldiers going for a hike up the mountainside. That morning, the natives watched the cavalry attempt to climb the mountain with the baggage and struggle over the terrain, so they aimed an attack on the horsemen. And while they did that, Hannibal, who was already up high, ran down from his higher ground and surprised the enemy, splitting them, scattering them, and securing the mountain pass for his men. Who's on top and who's on bottom now? Verse. Waiting for Guffman. I love that for you. Happy Pride, everyone. Step four, lie to boost morale. So I know this isn't a geography or a meteorology podcast, but I can speak with some confidence and tell you that the weather in the Alps is a lot different than the weather in North Africa. And while Hannibal had a loyal entourage and a fairly noble cause, It's easy to understand that some persuasion was needed to get folks on board with this particular road trip. So Hannibal did what good daddies do when their little babies need some reassurance. He told them stories. Stories of Baal, the god of mountains and storms. Surely the HBIC of the Alps, and according to the general, their patron saint on this journey. Because the name Hannibal means... Baal's grace. And his clan name, Barca, means lightning. And so Hannibal could assure his troops that no harm could possibly befell them because their daddy was the mountain god's favorite. If Baal is a god of storms and mountains, Hannibal could say, this is my god's turf. I'm safe here. But of course, there comes a point in the journey when you get a tad cranky no matter which god you have in your corner. And after a week of climbing up, down, and all around the Alps, the murmurs of the crowd gathered to form the question. Are we there yet? To which Daddy Hannibal replied in about six more Bugs Bunny cartoons. So something that I left out earlier when I was talking about my childhood was my dad's response to are we there yet? Mm-hmm. I could not understand time in minutes But I knew about how long I could enjoy Elmer Fudd attempting to get either Daffy and or Bugs. And that was roughly about six to ten human minutes. So, my dad's answer to Are We There Yet was always a matter of Bugs Bunny cartoons. That's adorable. How much longer to grandpa's? About three Bugs Bunny cartoons. So, actually telling me the truth that we were 30 minutes away, but putting it in terms my tiny little brain could understand. Way to go, Dad. Yeah, great daddying. But really, the back half of the 16-day journey across the Alps was punctuated by grown men and elephants asking how much longer they had until they got there. I was thinking about how an elephant complains, and then I was also thinking about how my mic wouldn't be able to pick it up. So, insert elephant complain sound. That'll be easy to find. Yep. Elephant sad. (laughs) And each day from the front of the line, as they complained, Mr. Bale's Grace Lightning clapped back, Rome is just over that hill. Tomorrow, we dine at Sbarro's. woo And finally, when that tomorrow truly came, there was one task left before the merciful valleys of Italy. Some big-ass boulders. Which leaves us the final Carthaginian road trip to do. Step five don't forget the wine. While descending the Alps, Hannibal's path was blocked by limestone boulders large enough that turning back was an option on the table. But that would have gone over prob's not well, and so Hannibal tackled his rocky foe like a straight-up wizard. Troops were sent out to cut down trees and lean the trunks against the offending boulders. Then, when the winds were favorable, The transported forest was set on fire to superheat the boulders. Then the troops poured sour wine over them. With an acidic content similar to vinegar, the sour wine cracked the red-hot boulders to the point that Hannibal's men were able to break them with hammers and picks until even the elephants could pass through. What? That's insane! Science, bitch! From there, it was only a matter of winding their way down the steep slope and on into Italy. And with the Alps behind him, Hannibal's next innovations came at the Battles of Trebia and Lake Trasimene. And for 20 years, Hannibal Barca breathed down Rome's neck in an unprecedented series of assaults. The details of those two decades are meant for another episode, in and of themselves. And due to the 85 factors I'll get into on another date, Hannibal did not destroy Rome. Spoiler alert, I know. But his journey through the mountains was just the first of many tactile moves that have made the general's military strategies must-read content for training officers all over the world today. So let's maybe start repping the full picture of world history in our standard history classes, eh? because learning up on Hannibal Barca was way more fascinating and enriching than spending a whole quarter on the founding of Jamestown from the English perspective. I'm just saying. Plus there's elephant poop. Elephant poop is the key. Check the poo. Nicely done. I you. knew nothing. I also knew nothing and now I know way too much. <laughs> At least for this for one episode and I want to go into it further. Hannibal Barker was a a great leader. And even his later life after he went into exile is fascinating.
1: Anyone in exile is fascinating. Shout out to Hannibal. All right. So a difficult road trip, but parts of it sound somewhat enjoyable. Am I wrong? You know? I mean like it was hard.
0: A... Yeah. But put, you... put elephants on a raft. You you got to, and most of them made it, you're with your buds, you're making friends along the way, and for a while, you're kicking Rome's butt. Who gets to say that? All right, so let's transition to
1: what is famously known as the worst road trip of all time.
0: Oh, I love a downward spiral.
1: So we just got back from a road trip. On our drive to Southern Georgia, we split the drive up seven hours one day, five the next. Mm-hmm. But on the way back, we drove all 12 in the same day, which quite honestly, I think is preferable. It should have been 12, but it was more like 15 to 16 because of a massive backup near Fancy Gap, Virginia, which neither looked fancy or like it had a gap or even an Old Navy.
0: Was it a banana republic at the very least?
1: Definitely not a banana republic.
0: Well, then what's so fancy about Virginia's gap? We looked
1: at taking a shortcut or even just a way around the mess because we were sitting and I had to pee. But the sheer volume of traffic was kind of an indicator that maybe it was best to just stay on the tried and true path, go with what everyone else is doing. There's a huge margin of error if you decide to take an alternate route on any road trip. And rarely in my experience does it go well. Sometimes it ends with frustration, not being able to find a place to pee, and not making up much time at all. Sometimes, however, it ends in death murder hypothermia paradoxical undressing terminal burrowing and cannibalism during the 1940s there was a mass exodus of american settlers from the midwest to the west coast and who can blame them you can only take so much op and so much ranch dressing goes on everything in one lifetime <laughs> so they decided to manifest their destiny and make sure they white man spread as wide as possible from sea to shining sea. Like mayonnaise on the cracker that is this continent. <sighs> During the 1840s, America was also experiencing an economic depression as well as typhus and malaria outbreaks. And people were just looking for a gosh darn break. This trip out west typically took the same route for most people. The Oregon Trail. Dun dun uh. Ever heard of it. This trail began in Independence Missouri and forked at the Continental Divide of the Americas, which was presented, which presented the travelers with multiple route options, all of them well worn and traveled. Fork. yeah. The journey generally took about four to six months from independence to the west Coast when wagons covered the typical distance of about fifteen miles per day.
0: Oh, my God, that is painstaking.
1: Our starting date is April 16th, 1846 in Springfield, Illinois. Donner, party of 32, your wagons are ready. 1950s television star Donna Reed looking for a better life in the Oregon. Re- oh, wait, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's Donner Reed.
0: You dumb slut. I
1: had to. The Donner Reed Party, typically just shortened to the Donner Party, included the Donner family, George Donner and his brother Jacob, and their respective families, and the Reed family, James Fraser Reed and his family, plus two servants and seven teamsters that were driving their wagons. The first, I'm line... sorry.
0: Yes. When what did they really? Did you think they genuinely cut off Donner Reed after Donner Reed became famous? Maybe. Like I did not know that it was called that originally and now I'm obsessed with it. And the breed is a very important part, which you'll, you'll find out.
1: So the first leg of their journey was from their home in Springfield to independence, Missouri, which was the official start of the Oregon trail. The ride to independence was 250 miles and it took the families just a little under a month in independence. They would replenish their supplies and then set out westward. So along this trip, several large families joined the Donner and Reed families. So they started as 32, but they grew. The Murphy family, the Eddie family, the Pike family, the Graves family, and the Breen family, among others. A couple of their smaller groups, like Lewis Kesseberg and his wife and child, as well as several single men also joined. Safety in numbers. Eventually, the group reached 87 people total. Now, there is one Steadfast, important rule that all settlers looking to move out west had to follow. Never set out for California later than April 1st. The absolute latest you could leave independence and still hope to avoid snow was May 1st. But most people held steadfast to the April 1st date. The original members of the Donner Party left independence on May 12th. And it wasn't easy from the get-go. The first death didn't come too long into the trip. Outside of independence, one of the Reed grandmothers died of consumption. The family already knew she was sick and they didn't know what else to do with her. So they strapped her to a wagon and said, you're dying on the road, grandma. Sorry.
0: What is this urgency that made them a leave at May 12th? And then also it's just like, can you wait a year and let grandma die in a place she's familiar with? Gold. Uh, uh,
1: okay. After Mima's death, they had to take time to, much like in your story, build a ferry to get all the wagons across a very flooded river. <laughs> Poor Mima. That task, paired with Mima's funeral and the burial of Mima, set Stop. the.
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's like my tickle button i don't know uh, what it is well let's get the giggles out now
1: because this story gets dark
0: i guess it's just quick this is a since we're already a mess anyway this is like just for you right now it's like <laughs> did do you do you watch late night with seth myers yeah his no lindsey graham impression is just lindsey graham yelling at his meemaw who's in another room <laughs> so anytime i hear it i just think Mima! Are you out of sandwiches, me, Ma? <laughs> so it's Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham is on this trip now.
1: I wish he was. High probability of death. Ah! So the building, the ferry, and the funeral for Grandmother Reed set the lot back another five days. Shocking no one, the families were clashing before they even got through Kansas. But despite this and their initial setback, the next couple of months, Went relatively okay. So, through the summer, it was mostly smooth sailing across Nebraska and Wyoming. Reed was notoriously egotistical and arrogant. He was kind of the self appointed leader, despite the fact that the whole thing was basically George Donner's idea and he organized it. And Reed insisted on making all the big decisions. And boy, howdy, did he make a bad one. Lansford Hastings an American explorer and future Confederate soldier slash piece of garbage was a tried and true Oregon trail, quote unquote, expert. So this is a man, he was not part of the Donner party. This is a man who had been exploring the territory for years. He discovered what he believed to be a shortcut, which he titled the Hastings cutoff. And to promote this route, he sent riders along the OT with, that's the Oregon trail with, pamphlets encouraging settlers that they could save 350 miles by taking this newfound route and in turn giving business to stops that were along that route. But that's a whole other thing. I'm not going to get into because of time, okay. but on July 12th, a writer found the Donner group and encouraged them to save time by taking the Hastings cutoff. The pamphlet said that Hastings himself would be at Fort Bridger, Wyoming to help folks access the new route. Reed, who thought himself to be the most knowledgeable about the terrain, and honestly, this might be true because he was a former soldier and had spent time in the West already, decided that he would take the group through the Hastings cutoff to make up for the time they had already lost.
0: I mean, there's a lot of West, Reed. There's you Just, just because you, you've been to Colorado doesn't mean you understand New Mexico. I understand they're not there. It's just that's the names I pulled right now. It's the West. Like... Okay. It's
1: Go big, be kind, go West. It's broad
0: strokes that don't move the world.
1: (laughs) So there are many books and online accounts that share manifests of literally everything the pioneers were carrying with them on that journey. It's too much to get into here considering I'm already long-winded, but suffice it to say that among the 87 people, there were 60 to 80 wagons at any given time, hundreds of livestock for transportation and food all of their personal belongings and all food items that they could carry with them. And about half of the settlers on this trip were children. So these facts would make the next part pretty dangerous. Just outside Fort Bridger, Reed and the crew ran into a man named James Clyman, an old military friend of Reed's. I love how these people just run into each other in the West, the West. And as promised, James Clyman was with Lansford Hastings. Reed was like, bro, we're going to take your cutoff. And Clyman and Hastings looked at each other and were like, uh, maybe don't do that. Um, While the shortcut would save time, Clyman and Hastings, who literally had just taken the Hastings cutoff on their way back to Fort Bridger, told them basically that it wasn't made for a group as large as theirs. It was a maze of canyons. The journey across the Great Salt Desert was difficult and horrifically hot. And the Sierra Nevadas would probably kill them. But who is this cut off for <laughs> no one, no one should have taken it. But all the group could think about was how the shortcut would shave about 350 miles off their journey. And at this point, they were already sick of each other and they were like, fuck it. Let's go. LFG. Tamsin Donner, George's wife, was the only person that vehemently protested this saying, we ain't doing this, kids. To which I say, let the women do the work, because if she had made the decision, we wouldn't be here.
0: Oh, no. I was going to say, please tell me Tamsin just said, fuck it, and then stepped behind with Hastings, and they, like, opened a bed and breakfast together, and she lived mm-hmm. a happy, long life.
1: She does not live a happy, long life.
0: Damn it. On July
1: 19th, nine wagons turned onto the Hastings cutoff, the other wagons opting for the regular route. At Fort Bridger, they were told once more that they should not take the trail, and once again... They did not heed the warnings pretty much immediately. They found the terrain much more difficult to navigate than they would have thought. It took them 16 days to navigate the cliffs of the Wasatch. Wasatch.
0: I feel Wasatch. like it's
1: Wasatch. Wasatch mountain. Wasatch. So 16, 16 days to navigate these cliffs when it should have taken them a week. The next big hurdle was the Great Salt Lake Desert, which took them two weeks to navigate, not five weeks, not five days, as promised. Intense heat made travel almost impossible. So this is late summer, early fall. Many animals died of thirst, and those that didn't ran away in order to find water sources, leaving the group without transportation and food. Wagons had to be abandoned. Everyone's skin was cracked and bleeding. Quick trigger warning. If bodily fluids make you squeamish skip ahead about 10 seconds, according to the Donner party episodes of last podcast on the left, everyone was caked with urine and feces and the women's stank of menstrual blood and yeast infections.
0: Uh, uh, it'd be so uncomfortable. And your only options are walking in a desert or riding on a fucking wooden bench the Hastings the
1: Hastings group rejoined the original trail after 60 days of pure terror and anguish on the Hastings cutoff it had taken the original group only 30 days to reach that same point the Hastings cutoff was actually 125 miles longer than the tried and true route
0: what the fuck was Hastings
1: talking about so needless to say Tensions were running high towards James Reed, who made the decision to do this, and whom the others were now blaming for all their problems. James Reed's blood was also boiling. After his wagon got intertwined with John Snyder's wagon, Reed stabbed and killed Snyder. So, this would be the first murder. So, you have to remember now that the West was not a part of the United States still. There was no law and no government on this trip. So, many of the people involved. Wanted to hang Reed, but instead of adding one more to the death toll, they decided to banish him, sending him along with only a horse and no food. His daughter snuck away the night he was set to the night he was banished and gave him guns and some crackers and finding it to be a better option than trying to continue the journey alone. James Reed found a U.S. Army outpost and joined the Mexican-American War.
0: I hate this.
1: And now, here we are at the worst part of the trip. Welcome to Truckee Lake, Nevada.
0: Things are already so bad.
1: The first snow in the Sierra Nevadas typically... So there's... There's a lot of deaths that are happening that I am not talking about individually and not a lot, but there are a couple accounts of one of the older single men deciding he couldn't walk anymore. His feet were too cracked and bleeding. So he sat down on the side of the road and they literally just left him there. There have been a couple other incidents that have happened with folks dying, but but nothing as bad as we're about to get to.
0: Oh, my God. That's so sad.
1: It's very sad. All right. Truckee Lake. Worst part. So the first snow in the Sierra Nevadas typically came in late October, but in 1846, the first blizzard hit on October 7th, much earlier than anticipated, and they had already left late. They attempted twice to start the crossing of the Sierra Nevadas, but the snow was way too deep. They started this on October 9th, so they had missed their shot by about two days. And at this point, they had no choice but to make camp on the banks of the Truckee Lake and hope for better weather. So the winter of 1846 through 1847 would eventually go down as the worst and coldest ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere.
0: Oh, God.
1: The group would eventually spend over five months in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And in that time, they were hit with 12, sorry, 10 crippling blizzards. Audrey, These people suffered. And honestly, it's almost a blessing that I'm trying to keep this relatively short because that way I can't go into the worst of the details. Just suffice it to say they suffered. They built structures at Truckee Lake, killing and skinning all their oxen and horses and cows to use to keep warm. Of, Of the 80 some people that were at the camp, half were young children. So Franklin Graves, the patriarch of the Graves family, who actually turns out to be one of the most heroic and selfless of all the people in the group, decided that he was going to lead a team through the mountains at all costs in order to bring help back from California. So he was going to get a small team together so they could go on ahead and bring back a rescue mission. This group called themselves the Forlorn Hope. They split from the main group who would remain at Truckee Lake. The snowshoe group, as they were also called because they had to fashion snowshoes in order to walk, consisted of 17 total adults, 12 men and five women. The trip to and back from Johnson's Ranch, California, which was the destination, should have taken them six days. They would end up stranded in the mountains for a month and a half. Perhaps they should have chosen a more uplifting name because the Forlorn Hope group hit some speed bumps to put it extremely mildly. So their ultimate goal, like I said, was to reach Johnson's Ranch in California. But they made a bad turn or 12. In fact, at one point, accounts say that they could have looked over a ridge and seen Johnson's Ranch, but instead they made the wrong turn and walked further into the canyon. Eventually, one of the single men, an Irishman named Patrick Donlin, was the first to suggest cannibalism.
0: Oh, come on, Patrick. They drew lots to see who would die
1: and who would live. Patrick Donlan himself drew the short straw. Well, that's what you fucking get. But luckily for him, the group discovered that none of them could resort to murder. Yet. And the idea was abandoned. It didn't take long, however, before people in the forlorn group started to just die off. They thought it was from hunger, but really it was from hypothermia, which could be evidenced in their behavior uh i don't so the scientific term for it um paradoxical undressing
0: i was going to ask what that was cuz it sounded like something the vatican ordains but i don't <laughs> think it is so
1: it's it's where uh so there's some a science happens right so you're freezing to death and your blood vessels constrict as mm-hmm. you are freezing but when you're in the final stage they essentially explode and you overheat and people that are suffering from hypothermia in the late stages will famously just start tearing all their clothes off. So, and that actually happened to Patrick Donlin, started tearing his, all his clothes off, ran directly into the snow. Um, So these people were not quite passing away yet from hunger. It was all hypothermia, but they didn't know that. Eventually the group had three dead bodies, all who died naturally. And, unfortunately, they knew what they had to do. And as our last podcast friends would say, that's when the cannibalism started.
0: Hey-oh, they said the thing. They said the intro thing.
1: So, from these three bodies, they harvested only four days of meat. And knowing that they would likely be murdered if they stayed, the two Native American men that were helping the group left in the middle of the night, leaving the forlorn hope even more helpless. These men were from the Miwok tribe, and they were called Lewis and Salvador. Unfortunately, the group ran back into them a couple of days later, murdered them, and ate them.
0: Are you serious? We're so bad all the time. We are the villain in every story. White people, get it together. After six
1: weeks of agony, William Eddy was the only one to make it to Johnson's Ranch where he implored their help to save the other members of the Forlorn Hope as well as all of the gang back at Truckee Lake. They followed the blood from his frozen, cracked feet back to the rest of the members of the Forlorn Hope group that he had left along the way. Only seven out of 17 members of the group survived. The only good news, the rescue operation could now begin. So let's go back to Truckee Lake. So keep in mind that the people that were waiting to be rescued believed that the Forlorn Hope group would be gone for six days, and it had been six weeks. Eventually, there were four rescue missions that set off from Johnson's Ranch. The first relief, they're called the first relief, second relief. The first relief arrived on February 18th, two weeks after William Eddy got to Johnson's Ranch. The camp was under almost 20 feet of snow. Corpses scattered the campsite. 22 people, mostly children, were rescued by the first relief. This group, on their way back into California, met the second relief, who was coming back towards Truckee Lake. And guess who was with them? Good old James Reed, fresh from war, there to save the rest of his family.
0: Absolutely not. Absolutely fucking not. No, I do not want him back in the story. He already done fucked up and he got off too good. He got off better than he deserved. He does not get to be a hero.
1: Margaret Reed, as part of the group that was saved by the first relief, collapsed with joy when she saw her husband.
0: I mean, I get it, but I'm still mad.
1: I know. Okay, brace yourself. When Reed and the rest of the Second Relief arrived at Truckee, they discovered that between the first and second rescue missions, cannibalism had started at the Truckee camp. Even worse, it was the children that had eaten the dead. An account of a member of the rescue mission wrote, the survivors, the children, looked more like demons than human beings. The Donner children had even eaten the flesh of their Uncle Jacob Who had died during the long winter. So the second relief brought out 17 people, and this group had a harrowing journey to California. 17 is apparently a very unlucky number for this group. On March 5th, they were hit hard by a blizzard. They ran out of food. Elizabeth Graves, Franklin's wife, died of hypothermia. James Reed was sent ahead to get more relief while the others hunkered down in the mountains. Mary Donner, just seven years old and already having consumed the flesh of her uncle was the first to suggest eating the corpses. Eventually a rescue mission arrived to save the rescue mission. The third relief arrived at Trekkie to further carnage. Trigger warning. William Eddy, who had been a part of the forlorn hope, he was the only one who made it to Johnson's ranch, returned to Truckee on March 14th to find that Louis Kessaberg had eaten the remains of his infant son.
0: Oh, my God.
1: The third wave took out all but four people after that. George Donner and his wife, Tamsin, Kessaberg, and Mrs. Murphy. All the children are gone at this point. So the fourth relief arrived a month later, April 14th. This group was sent mostly to recover some of the loot. So remember that many of these families have been traveling with their entire life savings. They were moving their lives from Midwest to West Coast, and they wanted to recover as much as they possibly could. When they arrived, no one was seen, but the camp was strewn with human limbs. It looked like a slaughterhouse. In George Donner's tent, they found his head split open and the inside scooped out. Keseberg was the only one alive, and he had eaten the rest of them. He denied murder, saying that they had all died of natural causes, but he did not deny eating their corpses. In the end, 48 of the 87 members of the caravan survived, including all five of George Donner's children, three members of Jacob Donner's family, and the entirety of the Reed family. Truckee Lake is now called Donner Lake. Louis Kesseberg lived a long life, and for the rest of it, was labeled as Kesseberg the cannibal. Obviously, horrible PTSD for all, many of whom had to consume their own relatives, and in some cases, their parents. Although many surviving members denied cannibalism, there is absolutely no doubt that it happened. So... Next time you're stuck in a standstill outside Fancy Gap, Virginia, eating Doritos, listening to Sirius XM, and enjoying a climate-controlled automobile, count your blessings and tell yourself it could always be worse. Woof. As a side note, I have to tell you that I had medium-rare steak last night, and to be honest, I'm a little fucked up about it right now.
0: My body had 85 responses to that. And also the joy of this audio platform that we're on right now. Listeners did not get to see the we agreed at the top of this episode that because we both had had written quite a bit, we didn't want to interject as much, but I could not stop saying, Oh my God, constantly through things. And what you heard was maybe only a fraction of what was happening on my face and with my arms. I full kermited several times. This is awful. Yeah. The story's awful.
1: I've heard it a few times now and it never, it stops. It never gets easier to hear.
0: I've also, well, this is the thing is I was going to say, I'm like, I've, I've looked into it independently and it's like, it doesn't stick in my head because some part of my brain refuses to let it live there.
1: You know what? That's absolutely true. I had listened to the the last podcast on the left episodes about this before, as well as other podcast episodes. I re-listened to them this past weekend on this car trip. And there were so many things I don't remember. I think it's because my brain, my brain rejects. I can't think of cannibalism. I can't do it. It's, it does not, they can't live rent free
0: in here. I have two pieces of solace that I can take from this story. One, I think that even as bad as it was, It would have been worse if James Reed were there during the worst of times. Correct. The fact that this guy who was ready to kill over wagons getting intertangled and they gave him the, the blue skidoo, get out of here. You go off and and fight in the war. And he lives through the war. What I do want to know more about James Reed. And I don't want to know more about James Reed in my mind. He is the Jake Hostetter, the what from uh, it, Stephen King always writes at least one just psychopathic bully. Yeah. That is who James Reed is for me. He's a bully. But my other good note is, come on, Samson.
1: Smartest person on the trip.
0: She made it.
1: You said she didn't live a long and happy life. She didn't. She died. She's one of the three that Kesseberg murdered.
0: Wait. She got eaten by Louis Kesseberg. Kesseberg. Kessaberg. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got really excited when her name popped yeah. again. all
1: five of George and Tamson's kids survived including yeah. Mary who loves the flesh of her uncle mm-hmm. all right let's leave it that's an awful one <laughs> sorry to everyone next week's topic
0: <laughs> would you like to hear it I wasn't quite done picking at the bones of this one I can't stop that you I can't stop that I won't Stop that. Remember when we were talking about elephant poop? That was fun. Let's go back to that. All
1: right. Do you want what's behind door number one or what's behind door number two?
0: Oh, God. Both fists are terrifying right now. I'm going to go with number one because I can't even.
1: Next week's topic is 1968. What? What? The Year of Our Lord, 1968. The, the, oh,
0: there's a lot to cover.
1: There's a lot to cover. I was going to give you the stipulation of try not to cover something that everyone already knows, but I don't want to give you that stipulation because I think there's a lot of stuff that either needs repeating or embellished on from your history books from 1968. So, oh my God. Pick at will. (sighs) In the meantime, we've been long-winded. I'm never eating again. My name is Elena. That's Audrey. You can find us at ifthesewallspod.com, ifthesewallspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at ifthesewallspod. You can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That helps a lot and tell a friend. And that's all we've got today. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, okay? A goodbye. Goodbye.